Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to the show. This is Ben speaking. Hey, guys. It's Russell. Today, we welcome Jackie Peso. Jackie grew up skiing on the East Coast. Great choice, Jackie, where she was a part of the freestyle ski team at Sunday River. After many years as a competitive mogul skier, with one title as Junior World Combined Champion, she took a break from competitive skiing. She then moved to Lake Tahoe and began coaching for the Alpine Meadows and Squaw Valley freestyle teams. A friend suggested that Jackie should try big mountain skiing, and the rest is history. Jackie has become one of the best big mountain free skiers in the world, and she was recently named one of the top 50 female athletes in action sports by X Games. Jackie, welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. And we want to talk about your life and, and different things that have happened to you, which led you to where you are today. But first, I have this really big fascination with Gould Academy because mm-hmm. I grew up in Conway, which is about an hour drive from Gould. For our listeners, Gould Academy is pretty much the place to go anywhere really on the East Coast. Or One of the great Do people East ever Coast. go from the West Coast to go to Gould too? Ooh, that's or a good is- question. Um. Uh, there's definitely a few people. I always wondered why, but there were definitely a few <laughs> kids <laughs> that traveled. And it's an international boarding school as well. So we had kids from all over the world. Yeah, so they farm skiers out of that school. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Jackie, so I have this theory. Occasionally I ask our guests from the East Coast because I have some East Coast pride too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so does Russell. So I think that when you grow up skiing in the East Coast, and you deal with all these conditions, probably worse conditions than what you deal with out west, probably definitely. <laughs> I think that makes you a better skier. You know, you have to get good at the hard stuff, and then everything seems easy after that. Do you agree with me being an East Coast skier and now living out west? Oh, definitely. I mean, there are some amazing, or there's a lot of amazing skiers that grew up out west and were born and raised and learned how to ski and everything out there. But, uh, I think coming from the harsh conditions that we have in the East Coast, it definitely makes you, I don't know, just prepared for anything that come your way. The hardest challenge I had moving out West was learning how to ski powder and getting powder skis. But I mean, there's so many great racers that come from the West Coast to little towns in New England to go to ski academies and end up world champions and stuff. So there's definitely something you know, about learning how to ski in the East Coast that breeds great skiers. Yeah, I don't want this conversation to get too one-sided. We're kind of bullying <laughs> I, I've on actually never the asked West Coast. Question. Yeah, ask <laughs> to, to a, a West Coast person, and then we'll see what happens. But, I, I mean, there's something you're doing now, though, that us East Coast skiers never really do, and that's, that's true. going off really big cliffs. <laughs> so <laughs> how did you ever get the guts if you didn't grow up hitting big cliffs to do that out West? I don't know. I mean, I I guess I grew up hitting freestyle jumps. And I think when I thought about hitting a big cliff, I thought, well, if I learn how to ski and jump into ice moguls, it really can't be that hard to hit a big cliff and land in powder, ideally. So I just kind of took what I learned from skiing in the East Coast and 
translated over into skiing off cliffs and stuff. And and it turned out to work out pretty well. Yeah, it seems like it. Let's talk about the the Eastern skiing with the moguls, because I did that as well, as we were talking about before the interview. I was a passionate mogul skier back in the day. And (laughs) God, you you were a mogul skier in the '90s, which was even cooler. I mean, a mogul skier in the '90s. There isn't really much better than that. What kind of tricks would you throw on your mogul jumps? Oh man, you know, spread eagles, twister spreads, three yep. sixties. Every once in a while, seven twenties. You know, <laughs> I never did a scream and semen, which I'm a little disappointed in mogul competition. But um, yeah, daffies. I had a friend of mine that was just amazing at Cossacks. I was a little jealous of that. <laughs> yeah, freestyle skiing tricks are pretty cool. Do you ever for, do a screaming semen, Ben? I never will try I always wanted to, semen. but it just <laughs> seems so unsafe. For our listeners, if you aren't aware what a screaming semen is, it is when you go off of the jump and you cross your legs in midair, and this is fairly difficult to do with long skis, right? Because you have to get the tail so you put of your one ski, ski up and over. over. Exactly. And then back. And then back, obviously, yeah. because I think the screaming semen happens when you don't lift the other <laughs> ski back to its original position. But anyway, we can move on. I think that's for a different kind of podcast. So Jackie, eventually you lose this passion in mogul skiing. What happened? Um, I had one year where I had an injury and I had done some damage to my ankle and it didn't really seem like it was that big of a deal, but it definitely, I tried skiing and I decided it was best to take that season off. And after taking that season off, I tried making a comeback. I was feeling a lot healthier. Um, My ankle was doing much better, but I just didn't have the same desire to, you know, my results were mediocre and the passion was gone. I just, I still enjoyed skiing, but I, I didn't have, I didn't have the desire to get to the level that I originally wanted to. How old were you when this happened? Um, I think it's like 21. So that's a, that's a pretty pivotal time in your life. I mean, you, you're committing a lot of your time to the mogul skiing and then all of a sudden it's gone. Were you worried? Did you know what you wanted to do next? Yeah, I was kind of devastated, I guess you could say. I mean, it was a pretty hard decision to walk away from it. It had been my dream since I started mobile skiing at like nine years old that I, I wanted to, you know, go to the Olympics and win a gold medal and that was going to be my life. And definitely when that all kind of fell apart, I had a few years where I was a bit lost. I mean, I knew I loved being active and I knew I loved skiing, but I just didn't know what I wanted to do with it now that I wasn't skiing moguls anymore. Yeah, it's funny. We talked to some Olympians on the podcast, and a lot of them have said, it's been my dream for X number of years to win a gold medal. And like I pursued that dream so hard, blah, blah, blah. But it only works if the passion sustains. So it's interesting to hear from the other side of that when you know you did actually, you admit you have this dream, but there's no reason in carrying that out if you don't have the passion anymore. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's just so many other people out there that if they want it more, they're going to get it. And if your heart's not in it 100%, it's it's a pretty tough task to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're in that kind of lifestyle, do you turn professional when you're 18? What did that look like up to 21? Definitely didn't turn professional. Mobile skiing was, I mean, it was an amateur sport. I suppose if you made the U.S. national team, if you're on a certain level, you're getting more support. But until you got to be your A team, um, I'm actually not even exactly sure about that, but I'm pretty sure if you're on the C team, 
you had no support in the development team, the same goes for that. So I coached, I started coaching, I think when I was 18 and that was how I helped fund my ski career that paid for my past, that paid for my coaching. And then just working jobs in the summer, like every other 20, 21 year old. Mm -hmm. So you lose the passion and then there's kind of this awkward time where you don't know what you want to do with your life. Like, how does that feel? And what steps do you need to take in order to find something? I mean, you can't just all of a sudden say, you know, this is my passion. I want to do that. It kind of needs to find you. Yeah, um, it was it was tough. I had a few ideas of things that I wanted to do. Like I went mountaineering in the Himalayas mm-hmm. on a nose trip. And, you know, I thought, oh, I want to get into mountaineering. That This sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, uh, I tried a few things and eventually I ended up in Tahoe. But I was still just coaching and I was still a little bit lost for the first couple of years I was in Tahoe. Yeah, so we have a lot of mountaineers on the show, actually, and they talk about their experience climbing Everest and, and the things that go on in their head when they're near the summit when they don't have a lot of oxygen. Why didn't you stick with the mountaineering? Um, <laughs> the lack of oxygen sounds like yeah. a reason well, people not to. love the I lack know. of oxygen. I mean, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Because <laughs> it's such a love-hate. Uh, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't completely gotten rid of that dream or goal to get into more mountaineering. I guess I've kind of gone more in the direction of, of ski mountaineering. Mm-hmm. But there was a point, I don't know, it's like 2007 or 2006 where I had actually, I'd been living in Tahoe and I'd gone back to Maine for a summer. And there's a few just guys in Maine that are known for mountaineering just locally around the area and I thought oh maybe it'll be cool to stay around here do some stuff up in Mount Washington learn a few things from these guys and I wasn't going to go back to Tahoe and I was kind of like okay I'm going to do the mountaineer thing maybe go out to Washington or something like that and then I had two friends of mine that were living in Tahoe that were like no no that's no you're mm-hmm. you're moving <laughs> you're moving back out here I've uh, got a place for you to stay, you know, another friend's like, you're, you're going to come ski with me. So they changed my mind and got me back out to Tahoe. So yeah, like I said earlier in the interview, a friend says to you, you know, you should probably try big mountain skiing. And I said the rest is history, but I'm sure it's a little bit more complex than that. What happened when that friend said, let's try big mountain skiing? Were you just a natural? I don't know. I mean, things came, I guess, a lot faster for me than maybe for some people. I didn't have any of the equipment when I first started. I'd say my first official year of competing in big mountain skiing was in 2008. And that was when I came back with my friends and they got me introduced to these guys from, um, from Moment Skis, a company based out of Reno, Nevada. And uh, I went skiing with them right around New Year's and after skiing with them, they're like, you know what, you should, you should do some contests. We'll, we'll help you, you know, with your registration and stuff, but you should definitely sign up for some big mountain contests. Do you remember what your skis were called for moment? We had a few people from moment mm-hmm. on, so. They're scary, uh, <laughs> scary names, let me tell you. <laughs> oh man, what was the last, the Rubies. Oh, were, that's so a nice they're not, I don't think I had, I think I had, uh, 
None of this, none of the like night train or death wish or house. No, I don't think that's (laughs) that was before those. I I think the the rubies were probably my main ski of choice Mm -hmm. when I skied for a moment. Yeah, the skis are great. Ben and I both got to demo them, and the the square tips definitely make them stand out too, which is nice. Um, So Ben and I were doing a little bit of research too, and we're trying to figure out the world of. Uh, professional big mountain skiing. And, and basically it comes down to is what we learned. There's the free skiing world tour and then there's the free ride world tour. Could you maybe talk about the differences between those and if there's anything else out there for professional big mountain skiers to do? Um, yeah, it's going to get a little confusing though because <laughs> things have changed a bit. <laughs> Interesting. Well, this is good to hear. Yeah, so originally... There was the Free Skiing World Tour, which is based out of North America, and then the Free Ride World Tour, which is European-based. Hmm. And I actually, I started skiing on the Free Skiing World Tour, and that was two years ago. They merged, both tours merged oh, wow. together to become the Free Ride World Tour. So now there's a series of qualifiers, the lower-level events, one-star, two-star, three-star and so one stars being the events that are you know if you're just starting out you can get into those and you earn points to get into the higher star events and then yeah athletes can compete on those in north america new zealand europe to try and earn a spot on the free ride world tour now is this a peaceful merger everything went well (laughs) i i uh I'm not sure. <laughs> and well, how about Falpa from your perspective as an athlete on the on the tours? Were you a member of both tours? I've been a member of both tours. Uh-huh. Um, most recently, I've been competing on the Free Ride World Tour. I started off in the Free Skiing World Tour, which is the U.S. based, and I heard about the Free Ride World Tour, which was a little bit more invitation only or uh-huh. qualifying, whereas the Free Skiing World Tour, anyone could sign up. And you could do a qualifying day if you didn't have enough points. And I'm if you do sign a up, Russell, day, yeah, anyone can do it. <laughs> yeah. huh? I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna prank sign you up, Russell, and I'm gonna take you out to the mountain. <laughs> so are they pretty much every weekend then? It seems like a lot of traveling, pretty expensive too. So the qualifying events, I think they have them, yeah, every weekend, maybe in different regions, uh, multiple events going on at the same time. The world tour level, which I've been competing on. They're supposed to have five events last year for the women, six events for the men, but we had one cancellation this past winter. And for 2015, we're going to have four events total for the women and five events for the men. All right, Jackie, so let's focus on you and your competitions. You are known as the girl who goes as big as the guys, or at least that's what I've heard. So you kind of have this stigma attached to you. Does that affect the way that you are judged in these competitions? And also, does it affect the way that you go about creating your lines in these competitions? Um, I'm not sure if it affects the way I'm judged. I hope not. Of course, every, <laughs> every athlete, you know, I, I know a lot of the judges I've been working with for years, but you always have those moments in judge sports where you're like, oh, I wonder if mm-hmm. it was because of this. or But that's just the nature of a judge sport. As far as my line choice, I just choose what I want to ski. So it doesn't really, I mean, some days I'm feeling like I have a good line and it's a big line and maybe it's the same as the guys or better than the guys. And I feel like going for it. Other days, maybe I have an injury or 
the conditions aren't um, what something that I feel comfortable in, uh, and then I might take it easy. But I definitely personally like to ski something that is a challenge for myself and that if it goes as planned, it's um, definitely a lot more rewarding than taking it easy. So I want to break down one of your runs just so our listeners can get a little bit of a visual of what you're doing. So I watched this video of you and, and I don't know if you even want to talk about this or not. <laughs> you know so, you, okay. <laughs> so you go and you hit this. I'm actually, they could be way bigger than they look, but it looked like maybe a six foot cliff. You hit it. Perfect. No problems. You ski down a little further then maybe you hit about a 15 or 20 foot cliff. And your knees kind of bounce down when you when you land from there. And then you turn over, and I watched this the first time from a GoPro's angle. So mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure what was happening. And you go down, and you slow down. And I'm not sure if that's your technique or you're just, you haven't really seen this before. And then you just go for it. And right at the bottom, it must have been 50 feet. 50 feet your ski clips a rock and then you almost slam your head into another rock. Had you done that line before? Had you done that massive cliff where there's so much danger? Um, if you that, know what I'm talking this about. season, right? Was that Snowbird? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Snowbird. Yes. No, I haven't done the line before. That event was a little bit unique because we had horrible conditions in the original Venice slid. Um, wow. Usually we don't get to ski in the venue. We don't get to practice them. We're looking from a distance with binoculars. So you have to try and figure out if it's the same cliff from up above. Oh, that was a, it wasn't actually that big of a cliff, but for some reason I didn't pop and just sucked it up. And yeah, it, it didn't feel that bad, but I definitely scared a lot of my friends, which I didn't feel that great about. My mom in particular, who was watching it online she never actually watches she like will let she'll listen to the commentators oh, wow. first and uh I don't, I don't know if you saw the the video the non-gopro play mm -hmm. of it yeah the commentators just stop talking yeah. <laughs> so my mom instantly starts you know she hears the silence and realizes but i was perfectly fine it just things did not go as planned we'll have that video posted on your meister profile Both page we'll, we'll put the Both, gopro yeah. and the back because it's a totally different it, it really feel is. which is pretty interesting. interesting so i guess this stuff seems like it's pretty dangerous what makes you want to do it you know it's a challenge i mean that was one of the reasons why i came over to the european tour to do the free ride world tour it um they had you know, these visual inspections where you're looking and if you're ever going to do filming or if you just want to advance your skiing and progress some more, that's what, you know, made my skiing progress. And uh, I don't know, I, it's definitely, it's dangerous and you try and not take too much of risk and try and assess the situations and figure out. And there's been times where, you know, you stand on top of something and you decide, you know, this looks a lot different from up here. Maybe I'm not in the right spot it's not worth it and you back off from things. You're involved in a lot of these free ride world tour competitions. How much are you actually going in the backcountry by yourself? You know, it depends on the winter. I, I try to get out into the backcountry as much as possible, but the travel is pretty hectic with the free ride world tour. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I spend more time flying between Europe and North America, unfortunately, but 
free skiing with friends or doing photo trips and stuff like that, uh, I definitely try and get out there. And obviously, I think free skiing with friends is the most exciting part <laughs> of what I get to do. Um, I enjoy the competition. I, I enjoy it more when I do well. Um, but nothing beats like having a great day out in the backcountry with your friends. Yeah, definitely. It's always fun to have your friends out there. And, and since you're here and there are probably people listening that have friends that go in the backcountry too, how do you research the places to go to make sure that they're safe and it's, it's going to be a fun line and a fun day? That's tough. You know, it depends on the area. Definitely try and look at avalanche forecasts if uh, areas have those. And it's good to get local knowledge if you haven't been in the area. A lot of people, you know, in Tahoe, they're able to follow what's going on throughout the season so they get a good idea of what's going on in the snowpack. Um, but in some areas, uh, like for fellow East Coasters up, you know, Mount Katahdin, if you're going up there, there's, there's not a lot of information as what's going on in the backcountry, uh, how the snow conditions are. So you also have to have, you have to be knowledgeable yourself you have to have avalanche training and be able to assess situations and know how to travel safely since we also have you on we want one more recommendation if you don't mind could you give a gear recommendation for our listeners sure yeah i think one of the most important items that i have when i'm skiing that i have with me all the time is my uh my helmet and it's a scott chase mips helmet definitely one of the most comfortable helmets i've ever used and it has this new MIPS technology inside. The lower layer in the shell moves so it reduces friction depending on the impact. And yeah, that whole system, comfort, uh, protection, everything, it's, I highly recommend it. Very cool. Thank you, Jackie. We will throw that on our website, mtnmeister.com, under your Meister profile page so everybody can see what you recommended. And Jackie, we have some good news for the Meister fans out there. Although we can't give away one of these helmets because there might be some sizing issues, we can do a giveaway for the Scott LCG goggles. Those are the goggles that Jackie uses, Meister fans. Here's how to be entered for a chance to win these goggles. Today, we're going to be composing a tweet that says something along the lines of retweet this for a chance to win a pair of the goggles. Retweet it. And make sure you follow us on Twitter so we can direct message you when you win. And Jackie, we just have one more question before we let you go. Let's go back to that time that we spoke about earlier when, you know, you stopped the mogul skiing and you just really weren't sure what you wanted to do with your life. You were really struggling and finding a direction. What advice do you have for people out there who may be experiencing something similar to that? I think maybe the best thing to do is get out there, try a few things. If you want to go back to school, go back to school, depending on, you know, try out different majors. Or if you want to get into mountaineering, go find a course where you can try mountaineering. I mean, you never know unless you get out there and try it. It's, it's better that you try something and you find out that you don't like it and you try a new thing than not do anything at all. I like it. Very good advice. It's very applicable for Ben and me, too, because we uh, <laughs> came from our corporate jobs. I was an engineer. He was in finance. So uh, uh -huh. podcasting is our new venture that we're loving so far. Oh, that's so, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show for all of our listeners. Talked about a couple different resources. And if you want to see those GoPro and then also the bird's eye view perspective of that run we were talking about, check out Jackie's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. So thanks a lot, Jackie. Thank you, guys. 
Meister fans, hope you enjoyed that episode with Jackie Peso. Russell's still on his vacation, but he'll be back shortly, don't worry. The video of Jackie falling got us excited to see some other falls, so if you have any fun spills where you're either wearing a GoPro or somebody else is filming you, send them over to us and we might feature them on our Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I actually had a fall this past spring when I went skiing. I went off of this cornice, which was maybe a little bit bigger than I thought it would be. And I didn't quite stick the landing and went tumbling down the hill. It's a pretty funny video. I'll post it to our Facebook, check it out. Join us next time on the show when we have Dr. Rowan Hauk. We're going to be talking to Roann about altitude sickness, understanding how it works, and also talk about a product that she made called Acclimate. 